We want our children to have the best chance to live fulfilling lives. But can you keep up with all the books and scientific research on parenting and fit the information into your own philosophy on how to raise kids? Welcome to Your Parenting Mojo, the podcast that does the work for you by investigating and examining respectful, research-based parenting tools to help kids thrive. Now, welcome your host, Jen Lumenlon. One survey of parents found that parents did adjust their perceptions of what activities were risky as their children got older, which is great. People of judging risk for themselves and childcare professionals are incapable of judging risk for children, which had tons of practical advice for getting kids outside more, as well as getting outside more with your kids. Today, we move on to the topic of risky play. We'll define it and discuss its benefits and drawbacks, as well as things that we as parents can do to encourage more risky play if we decide we want to. Now, before we get going, I want to acknowledge that this episode rests heavily on the work of Professor Ellen Beat Hansen Sandseater, and I hope I'm pronouncing that somewhat accurately, at the Queen Maud University College of Early Childhood Education in Norway. We've discussed quite a bit of research lately, which relies on a single researcher's work, and I'm thinking of the mindset and grit episodes, and I'm also familiar with the takedown of the power poses research by Dr. Amy Cuddy, which is the idea that if you stand up straight and spread your arms out wide in a really physically open position before you do something scary, like going to a job interview or giving a presentation, your performance will measurably improve. After another study failed to replicate the findings of the original one, Dr. Cuddy's own co-author ended up publishing a statement saying she didn't believe that power poses were real and had any benefit. And what those researchers had in common was a single paper or very few papers which formed the foundation for their work and an incredible amount of exposure, which these days is often measured in TED Talk views. Dr. Dweck of the Mindset Research is the laggard in this group, considering that her work has been around the longest with only 7 million views. Dr. Cuddy leads the pack with 45 and a half million views. On the other hand, Dr. Sansita hasn't given a TED Talk. The majority of her sample sizes are pretty small, we have to admit. She also almost exclusively works in Norway, except where she occasionally collaborates with researchers from other countries. So her findings may not be as applicable to people in other countries where risk is viewed differently than it is there. She has a blog, but honestly, it's pretty dry reading with most of the updates consisting of notifications about papers she's published, which non-academics can't access anyway because the actual papers are behind the publishing journal's paywall. I also haven't found any papers criticizing her methodology or her results. So my overall impression is that she's a scholar who's slowly and patiently built up a body of research over the last decade and a half. And she's interested in being a resource to educators in Norway rather than being a celebrity. All of which is to say that I generally trust her work. So how do we define risky play? Dr. Sansita tried to do exactly this in a 2007 paper for which she followed 38 children aged three to five from two Norwegian preschools and also interviewed the teachers at these schools. She selected the schools because of the variety of outdoor experiences available to the children in each of them. One of the preschools had a playground with what she calls, quote, typical equipment with swings, a climbing tower, a play hut, switchbacks, she doesn't say what these are, and a climbing tree. My first thought when I read this was I've never seen swings or a climbing tree in an American preschool playground because these are deemed too dangerous. So this paper is probably going to be pretty interesting. The other preschool was situated in a forest and had typical playground as well as use of part of the forest that was surrounded by fences. 
Both groups of students often hiked to nature areas like forests, the seaside, caves, and so on. Dr. Sansita observed six kinds of risky play that have since become standard ways to define risky play. And these are play with great heights, play with high speed, play with harmful tools, play near dangerous elements like deep water, rough and tumble play, and play where children can disappear or get lost. I'm going to quote and sometimes summarize the parts of the paper that really raised my eyebrows on some of these kinds of risky play. Regarding play from heights, her paper describes a group of four and five-year-olds arriving at the beach. One of them sees some cliffs that are about seven to 10 feet high and says, wow, I wanna climb up there. And so he does, and his friends follow. They explore the cliffs, which are steep and slippery. They keep coming over the cliffs and back into the woods above the cliffs, down to the beach, and then keep doing it over and over again. While the teachers did later describe this kind of play as risky, they watched this incident without interfering from 20 to 30 feet away, so too far to do anything immediately if something bad happened to one of the children. The children also described climbing to the roof of the climbing tower and jumping off, even though this was forbidden by adults in case they got hurt. One girl said, yes, it's a bit scary, but it's great fun. I often land on my bottom and that hurts a bit, but it's great fun anyway. The play with dangerous tools section was particularly interesting. It reads, in both preschools, the children were allowed to quite freely use tools that were potentially dangerous. For example, a knife for whittling, a saw for cutting down trees, or a hammer and nails for carpentry. Dr. Sansita took field notes on three instances. Firstly, the fire pit is lighted and the children are gathered around it, chipping with a knife each on some wooden branches. The children use knives freely and seem used to whittling on their own. Secondly, Alex, aged four, and Tori, aged five, have each got a hammer and nails and start pounding some wooden boats. They have great independence in their work and the school teacher present seems completely relaxed, even though they swing their hammers as they like. The two younger children, aged two to three years old, also take part and they get to play as equally independently as the older two children. Thirdly, the children participate in building a wooden climbing tower. They get to use the saws and knives as they like. One of the boys saws into his hand, but is fine after getting a band-aid. The children also participate in tying the branches together and then climbing on the construction when it's built. Sometimes the children were also observed using an axe, although I was amused to see that the teachers did supervise this activity a bit more closely than the others. Overall, the teachers thought that playing with these tools was somewhat risky, while some of the children agreed, but some didn't. Although in a subsequent study, Dr. Sansita observed that the children were quite closely supervised when playing with all kinds of dangerous tools, that the children tended to concentrate highly when using them, and also talked with each other about the importance of using tools correctly so as not to hurt themselves or others. Now, what these quotes and anecdotes reveal to me, of course, is not what these Norwegian preschoolers and teachers thought about risk, but the deep gulf between their perception of risk and the perception of risk in a country like the US, where knives, hammers, nails, saws, axes, and especially fire pits would never be allowed within 10 yards of preschool age children. While Dr. Sandseater believes that allowing children's use of dangerous tools in preschools is probably a Scandinavian phenomenon, I have personally seen 20 sets of pruning shears and a basket on the ground under the covered porch of a preschool in Reggio Emilia, Italy. I only saw the children indoors, but I can only assume that since there were enough pairs for a class full of children to use them, and they were sitting right out next to the wellies that the children used in wet weather, that a class full of them probably did and do use them. I'm also reminded here of an interview with Professor David Lancey, the anthropologist whose work we refer to often on the show. He says that parents in most societies don't intervene when children investigate a sharp knife or stray near the fire. 
When ethnographers ask parents why they allow this, the parents' reply is often, this is how they learn. Then the guy who's interviewing Professor Lancy asks, do you think it's wise to let children play with knives? And Lancy responds, I found there's a trade-off. If parents give their children such freedom, the kids may indeed get hurt, but serious injury is rare in village societies. Children there die most often of malnutrition and illness, not accidents. Meanwhile, village children happily take the initiative in learning how to use common tools like knives, setting their own pace and keenly observing those who are more competent. If parents were to play a more active and protective role in their child's development, the children might be safer from injury, but that sense of autonomy and ability to learn independently would be undermined. The children would cease to take the initiative to learn new things and instead wait for an adult's permission, guidance, or instruction. To me, this says a lot about American society where parents generally want their children to look to them for permission, guidance, and instruction. We show them how to use toys rather than letting them figure it out for themselves. It's almost as if we can't fathom that they could manage without us because we need to feel so central in their lives. So back to Dr. Sanseter's paper, the final issue I want to give examples on is play where the children can disappear or get lost. On one field trip, a five-year-old says, I'm going to go on a walk all by myself. And the teacher responds, that's all right, go ahead. Two other children join the first one. They walk for a short while and one of them goes back to the group while the other two crawl through some dense bushes and announce to Dr. Sanseter, who's been following them, goodbye, we'll be back at 12 o'clock. While the children thought that this kind of play was risky because they might get lost, they did it anyway because of the joyful fear they experienced. And the teachers actually did not feel as though it was risky at all and felt in control of the situations. Again, my mind was boggled. In the US, children generally aren't allowed out of a parent's or teacher's eyesight in a fenced area like a playground. And when they're away from these fenced areas, the boundaries become even tighter. At the heart of all this is the idea of risk the type and amount of risk that children are willing to take and that parents are willing to see children take. While environments can be inherently more or less risky because a hill is more or less steep and trees can have branches that allow small children to climb up or they don't, but there are individual characteristics associated with risk as well. Children can choose to climb more or less high up the hill or not. They can choose to ride a tricycle fast or not, and they can choose to focus and concentrate while playing or not. Children make these choices based on the risk that they subjectively perceive and the balance between their abilities and their fears about those abilities moderate their actions. Studies have found that there are differences between children's tolerance for risk, a statement which perhaps seems obvious to anyone with more than one child. Even I can see the difference in risk tolerance between my three and a half year old who thinks that jumping off the next to last step is pretty risky and exciting and her friend of exactly the same age who loved to snowboard and wants to know why he can't go on a zip line by himself. A high activity level and a desire to engage in daring behavior are important risk factors for accident proneness and injury incidents, although perhaps the overall rate of injuries does not increase for these children as much as they otherwise might because they, too, understand what their bodies are capable of and use their abilities and fear to regulate their risk-taking behavior. Children do tend to overestimate their physical abilities. One study that wasn't done by Dr. Sanseter observed the link between extroversion, impulsiveness, daring, and carelessness, implying that there's a link between the temperamental characteristics and childhood accidents. The study also found that children who watched a video of another child doing four physical tasks, like taking a toy off a high shelf and moving under a wooden bar resting on two posts without knocking the bar off, or putting their hands and knees on the floor, were more conservative in judging their own abilities when the child in the video failed, rather than when the child in the video succeeded. 
This implies that children get a lot of information about whether they can do something from whether their friends can do it. Although this ability overestimation was more of an issue for six-year-old males and temperamental characteristics were more at play for eight-year-olds. The study was pretty tiny, only 32 children, so it would be good to see if these findings were replicated with a larger number of children and a wider ethnic and economic sample base. We should also acknowledge that children aren't always the best judges of what parents might describe as true risk. One study in Denmark had a researcher follow 35 children aged 10 to 12 years for three or four days a week for eight months. The researcher talked with the children about how they perceive risk. One boy approached the researcher about why he chose not to use a bike helmet. He said, just to let you know, I don't use a bicycle helmet. The researcher said, why not? And the boy said, I don't need to because I'm really good at riding a bike. If anyone should drive into me, I would just jump off. There was another bike recently that rode into me. My bike was completely wrecked, but I jumped off. Another boy reported a conversation he'd had with his father who was trying to get him to wear a helmet for biking. The boy said he replied, I don't need to wear a helmet because I have very good reflexes. Then he told the researcher, one time I fell down the stairs over by the music room at school. I fell down on my tummy and I covered my head quickly. And he demonstrated by covering his head with his hands and arms. Then I just did like this, and I was not hit on my head, but on all the other places, meaning his hands and arms. The researchers note that a public service campaign in Denmark to, quote, use your head, wear a bicycle helmet, is likely to be ineffective because it implicitly asks students to consider the risks of not wearing a helmet, with the only logical conclusion being that they should wear a helmet. But these children believe they have learned the only logical lesson from their own experiences, which is that they don't need to wear a helmet because they can manage the risk without one. My purpose is not, of course, to argue that children shouldn't wear bike helmets. There are some risks that adults perceive that children cannot yet know are important. But children are exposed to many risks that are not life and death type of risks. And in these cases, we need to prepare them to make better decisions for themselves. Consider another anecdote from later in the same paper. Robert and John are going to slide down a snow-covered hill on a plastic sheet. Robert goes first, loses his balance, falls and tumbles, but runs back up the hill to do it again. John gets ready to go when Robert says, wait, John, move a little bit over to the left to avoid skiing into the brick wall. The boys did take a chance, but they judged their own and each other's limitations and used their first run as a trial to judge the environment to stay safe. Ultimately, this is what we want children to do, to be able to judge risk for themselves. And if we never allow them a chance to practice in relatively low risk environments when they're young, they might not be able to do it themselves later when it counts. Researchers conducting one study in Australia, which tends to be more like the US in terms of sterilizing its playgrounds, even observed that children who are bored in an excessively safe environment sought out inappropriate risks to add elements of exhilaration, fear, and being out of control. So why do children engage in risky play? I would have thought that an adaptive response from an evolutionary perspective would be to avoid risk, much as children avoid new foods in favor of safe foods because the new foods might hurt you. But it turns out the picture is in no way as clear as this, and indeed, children seem to need some exposure to risks. Let's look at Sandseater's six categories of risk in turn. So play involving heights helps children to develop perceptional abilities related to depth, form, shape, size, and movement, skills important both in childhood and in adult life. One study also found that children who were injured in falls before age five weren't more afraid of heights later in life than children who weren't, and children who were injured in a fall between ages five and nine were actually less likely to be afraid of heights than those who weren't injured in a fall. 
A young child who doesn't fear heights is more likely to behave in a risky way in high places, causing them to experience more serious falls, which will desensitize the child to heights so they fear heights less later in life. It's possible that similar benefits related to spatial orientation also accrue to children who play at high speed, although we aren't really sure why children enjoy feeling thrill and excitement associated with fast play, because evolutionarily speaking, humans didn't really experience high speeds in the same way that we do now. The same goes for play near other dangerous elements like deep water. Several studies have concluded that children are not more afraid of water if they've had some kind of traumatic event in water before age nine, and that playing near these dangerous elements can help children to overcome their natural phobias, and that these phobias do not arise as a result of accidents. We also know that risky play is positively associated with physical activity and social health, and negatively associated with sedentary behaviors, which makes logical sense, because children engaging in risky play are outside moving their bodies around. There may also be associations between risky play and learned risk management, self-confidence, mental health, and independence. I find this last one particularly ironic, given the high premium that Western parents put on independence. It seems as though by reducing their opportunities to engage in risky play, we're reducing their opportunities to learn and practice skills that would benefit their independence that we so value. Remembering that children don't really see tools as being particularly dangerous, we should also keep in mind that many of the tools we use today didn't exist for our ancestors, so we didn't learn to fear them. Children's interest in tools is less likely to be them trying to build a resistance to a phobia of tools, and more likely to be an interest in them and their functions for hunting and gathering. Rough and tumble play is found in cultures all over the world, and is also the most common form of play in non-human mammals. Researchers think that as well as providing great physical and motor stimulation, rough and tumble play enhances complex social competencies like affiliation with peers, social signaling, bargaining, and manipulating situations. Boys engage in this kind of play more often than girls and learn about aggression, fighting, social competition, and experience in both dominant and subordinate roles, even when they don't actually intend to hurt each other. Historically, this play had enormous value since gaining control over people and ecological resources was critical to survival and required a lifetime of learning and practice. Even now, it's possible that learning how to regulate aggression and real hostile behavior early through rough and tumble play is a critical skill for boys, although they may continue this play into adolescence, and at that point it becomes more of a hierarchy building activity. Children often use fantasy play to signal rough and tumble play is coming. Things like superhero play, play fighting, including wrestling, chase games, and protect and rescue games. If we think back to the episode that we did on gun play, we found a great deal of ambivalence among teachers about allowing gun play. And the same seems to be true for rough and tumble play, which teachers more frequently redirect and stop more than other forms of play. Perhaps we should reframe our own thinking about this kind of play. Instead of seeing it as play that looks like fighting and might lead to fighting, we can see it as play that supports children in answering questions like, who am I and what am I good at? That they might not yet have the vocabulary to address verbally, but that they can explore physically. Girls' vocabulary tends to lead boys by several months, which may be why they tend to use relational aggression rather than physical. They're more likely to ostracize another girl who steps out of line rather than punish her physically. Researchers believe that separation anxiety is a bigger issue for girls and boys because boys needed to stray further from the home to hunt while girls were creating a nurturing, safe environment for child rearing, which is why boys tend to engage in more of the wandering off kind of play than girls do. 
I think the nurturing part of that assumption represents a particularly Western-centric view, and I would love to see studies on this related to cultures that distribute work more equally, although unfortunately I haven't found any yet. Apparently, children's wandering off alone can act as a sort of antiphobic behavior that helps them to deal with involuntary separations from adults at other times. So risky play serves an evolutionary purpose for children, but surely there must be another reason they continue to do it and seem to enjoy it so much. Dr. Sansita observed another small group of preschoolers over a period of several days as they engaged in various forms of risky play and found that they expressed both fear and exhilaration, often fear first as they realized their play was becoming more risky and maybe too risky for their comfort. Assuming the goal is achieved, fear is followed by a highly aroused sense of exhilaration, which the children express by jumping up and down, stretching their arms up in the air or doing show-off moves. They often then wanted to repeat the play over and over again and attain even higher levels of difficulty through new variations of the play. Dr. Michael Apter developed reversal theory to explain why people engage in behaviors. And unlike most theories that attempt to uncover hardwired preferences, this one focuses on individuals' changeability and flexibility. Two motivational states relevant to risk-taking are the telic and paratelic states. In a telic state, a person is goal-oriented, sensible, cautious, and arousal-avoiding, while in the paratelic state, the individual is playful, adventurous, thrill-seeking, and arousal-seeking. In a telic state, high arousal is an unpleasant emotion that we want to decrease, while in a paratelic state, arousal is pleasant and we want more of it. In the paratelic state, a person may feel confident even though he perceives the risk he's experiencing and may deliberately move as close as possible to the edge between danger and injury because this results in the highest possible level of arousal. It's called reversal theory because a person can move back and forth between the two states as a result of internal emotions like frustration or satiation and by external events like sudden and new physical danger. Some individuals do tend to spend more time in one state than the other, and when individuals spend a lot of time in the paratelic state, she's understood to have a sensation or arousal-seeking personality. When Dr. Sansita interviewed four- and five-year-olds about why they engage in risky play, many of them discussed the ambivalence of feeling both excited but also afraid at the same time, and their most common description of this feeling was, it tickles my tummy. I do want to spend some time talking about how adults perceive these risks, because I think that that is one of the main reasons we don't allow children to engage in more risky play. Adults in Western cultures have attempted to reduce the risk associated with just being a child by standardizing playground factors like maximum fall height, how much impact a surface must be able to absorb, sharp edges, and the likelihood of being trapped, pinched, crunched, or struck. Unfortunately, we now engage in what is known as surplus safety, which refers to the excessive measures we take to prevent an injury from occurring, no matter how minor it is, whether or not any lasting negative effects occur, and disregarding any positive effects that might occur, and also regardless of cost. As we learned in our introduction to outdoor play and learning, the Centers for Disease Control reports that more than 200,000 children are treated in emergency departments annually for injuries sustained on playgrounds, but the rate of injuries is decreasing and the rate of both injuries and deaths remains tiny compared to injuries and deaths sustained on traffic accidents. I was interested to see that Dr. Sansita acknowledges a lack of supervision as a cause for childhood injuries in play, but she notes that supervising children doesn't mean restricting them from taking on challenges, but rather allowing the children to take on appropriate risks and challenges. 
The adults' own reactions, whether they interfere with, constrain, or encourage risky play, also contribute to the potential risk in a situation. Paradoxically, an adult can actually increase the level of risk in a situation by telling a child to be careful as the child's attention shifts from the challenge to the adult, reducing her focus on the challenge and thus increasing the potential for an accident. There's mixed evidence about whether parents respond differently to boys versus girls risk-taking. Some studies show that parents expect more independence from sons, while daughters receive more cautions about safety and more offers of assistance. But other studies found no differences in the way that parents treat daughters and sons. And even Norway may not be immune to the overall trend toward promoting safety. Dr. Sanseeter and a colleague published a study in 2016 with quite contrasting findings compared to her 2007 study where the preschool teachers chatted off to the side while four and five-year-olds climbed low cliffs and granted them permission to go exploring by themselves in the woods above the cliffs. They sent a survey to all 6,469 early childhood education settings in Norway. 32 of them responded, which isn't an amazing response rate and may not be a representative sample. The manager said that things had changed dramatically over the last decade or two. In some ways, risky play was still more permissible than in the US. For example, one respondent wrote, climbing with trees is accepted, but only up to a certain height and always with adult supervision. And then another one said, we are more careful in regard to climbing trees with rocks below where you can fall down and hurt yourself. My favorite example was, as a result of worries among parents, balancing on the fence that surrounds the institution is not allowed unless there is deep snow underneath. Although there was no mention of putting tape on the fence to be sure the snow is deep enough. But in other ways, early childhood play settings are coming to mirror those in more conservative countries as new rules on playground equipment define what is allowed in the outdoor space and equipment that was built by parent volunteers is removed. Local authorities are cutting down trees, and in one case, young children were being kept off the playground when large puddles had formed. Dr. Sansita worked with several colleagues, mostly in Australia, on a paper that defined 10 ways that children's risky play is restricted, and highlights some of the implicit and explicit assumptions that adults make about children's play, and I want to go through these at some length. Firstly, we assume that adults are the best people to manage children's risk-taking, in spite of the fact that children learn quite effectively how to manage these risks for themselves from the moment they start moving around their environment. When a young child falls upon encountering a steep slope, she isn't just learning how to navigate slopes, but also how to gather the relevant information to make a decision to solve the falling problem, which might involve crawling down the slope the next time she meets it. If we stop allowing her to make these decisions for herself and just put her on her hands and knees at the top of the slope, she misses the opportunity not just to learn about slopes, but to learn how to learn about navigating her environment. The same goes for older children. Yes, sometimes they fall, but they need the experience of evaluating risk and sometimes failing to get better at making judgments about risk and also about learning how to learn about risk. Secondly, we assume there are both good and bad playground surfaces, when, as we can imagine, given what we now know about how children learn about navigating their environments, uniform playground surfaces can really only be seen as a limitation on children's learning. I was surprised to learn that studies are actually not in unanimous agreement about whether rubberized flooring makes playgrounds safer. Some studies say it does, while others argue that falls from height cause the most significant injuries, and rubberized surfaces are most effective at attenuating falls from a standing height, not from the top of a playground structure. Further, children might engage in more risky play because they perceive they're safe due to the presence of the rubberized floor. 
Thirdly, we prioritize regulation over pedagogy in early childhood education centers, which is another way of saying that we attempt to legislate specifications and indicators of personal injury rather than trusting the people who are most intimately familiar with our children to use their professional knowledge and judgment to keep children safe. And training these teachers turns out to be critical. One study done in Vancouver that Dr. Sancita wasn't involved in took two playgrounds in early childhood education centers with few affordances for high quality play and gave them cheap makeovers, spending a total of $8,000 across the two centers for items like tires, bamboo poles, simple wooden walls to create a house and paint, as well as lots of loose parts like sand and sea glass. The playground in one centre had a greater potential for change than the other, and in that one there were marked increases in play with natural materials, as well as decreases in antisocial behaviour, but there was no change in the amount of risky play that the children engaged in at either centre. The researchers hypothesised that the teachers at the centres were not trained in any way to change their approaches toward risky play, which means that simply providing the equipment won't necessarily lead to changes in children's play if the adults around them are still telling them to be careful and not do things the adults think are dangerous. Fourthly, we assume that restrictions on play are necessary in a modern Western environment. These restrictions must be necessary because children are incapable of judging risk for themselves and childcare professionals are incapable of judging risk for children, and public transit isn't safe for children, and neither is walking on the sidewalk, really, so children shouldn't take field trips to a local fire station or a store or even the post box to mail a letter, as daycare managers said they were not in one study. Fifthly, we assume that some children are injury-prone when actually there is limited evidence for the genetic basis of injury-proneness, and most of the variance in injuries across children was due to environmental factors, and particularly factors associated with socioeconomic disadvantage, where children play in places like driveways of apartment blocks rather than in a play space. Sixthly, we assume that toddlers and preschoolers just can't walk. We push them in strollers and we drive them from our garages to their daycare, so they're essentially divorced from their community because they don't get to interact with anyone or anything in between the two. Yes, it takes longer to walk with a child, believe me, I know. And yes, in some places it just isn't safe and we need policymakers' help to make streets places that are welcoming to pedestrians. But I can speak to the benefits of ditching the car, which is our primary method of getting our daughter to and from daycare. She still gets dropped off at daycare by car because my husband drops her off on his way to work, which he has to drive to. But when I'm between projects at work and I can leave half an hour early in the evenings, I walk the two miles to her daycare and we take the bus back up the hill. We get to talk about bus schedules and making sure the number on the front of the bus matches the number of the bus that we need and what all the signs say on the bus. And she struck up conversations with people on the bus several times. Just today, we had to perch on a little informal seat on a crowded bus, and she said, can you sit next to me so I can have a hug because I love you and I like your hugs? And I certainly wouldn't have gotten that on a car ride. Because the bus stops several blocks from our house, we walk the last part, and she picks flowers, and we watch the cherry blossoms bloom as their leaves develop. And a few days ago, after the farmer's market, she walked five blocks up a hill with a stretch so steep it has steps without any complaining. Her stamina is definitely improving and she's getting the idea that we walk to places, which is going to be huge for us when we're on holiday in Taiwan, where we'll probably already have been by the time you hear this episode. Seventh, we're convinced by the statistics that we must find a way to avoid all hazards in the playground, even though it's statistically more likely the child will die in a vehicle accident on the way to the playground than while engaged in play. 
Eighth, we assume that parental guilt leads to good outcomes for children, and we aren't shy about applying that parental guilt. Just today as I'm writing this, Professor Peter Gray, whom we interviewed a while back on what motivates children to learn, published a blog post on Psychology Today about the benefits of risk for children's learning. And after he posted about the article on his Facebook page, someone commented, quote, I can remember the raised eyebrows and looks of disapproval from other parents at the park when I would encourage my toddlers to climb higher on the monkey bars or swing independently on the non-baby swings. My toddling twins derive pure joy from these basic moves of freedom, but the other parents observing this play only saw the risk and perceived danger. The pressure of surplus safety that stifles parent-child interactions also extends to the early childhood education settings, as both teachers and administrators are afraid that their careers, and maybe even the entire program, could be jeopardized by a lawsuit if they use professional judgment rather than surplus safety to guide their decision-making about safety. Ninthly, we design our neighborhoods without considering children's right to play. We put big houses on tiny lots with backyards that are designed for adults socializing rather than children's play. Houses are designed so people can roll up their garage door, drive inside, shut the door, and then go straight into the house. So opportunities to interact with neighbors are fewer. And since few people are out walking either, there's little opportunity for communal monitoring of children's safety. If we're lucky, a small playground might be incorporated into the community with the standard equipment and rubberized flooring, of course. If we're to move beyond this, we need parents, urban planners, transport planners, education departments, and policymakers to work together to overcome these issues. A tall order indeed. Finally, we assume it's good to help children to get ahead. And the best way to do that is to stimulate them with extra activities, which means they have to be driven around to all of those extra activities, which reduces children's opportunities to engage in spontaneous outdoor play, some of which is risky play, with whichever friends happen to be around. Dr. Sanseter and her colleagues observe that our individualistic view of safety lies at the heart of many of these problems. We're looking out for our own child's well-being and safety, and if we instead looked out for all children, we might choose to enact policies so that children can walk safely in cities by themselves, instead of keeping our own child safe by driving him everywhere. So what are we going to take out of all this information? Well, firstly, I think we can say fairly conclusively that children need to be exposed to risk to learn how to manage risk when they're young so they can learn how to do this when the stakes are low and better manage risks when they're older. Encounters with risks can have both positive and negative outcomes. Yes, children can fall, they can hurt themselves, they can break bones, and possibly in the worst of circumstances, they can die. But there are also positive outcomes to risks as children gain confidence, determination, skill, and learn how to manage or avoid risks they don't want to take. Secondly, a thought on how to manage risk. I've realized that one challenge I face in parenting is to adjust my approach as my daughter gets older and is capable of doing new things. I tend to find something that works and I kind of get into a habit of doing that, even when my daughter becomes capable of doing more by herself. One survey of parents found that parents did adjust their perceptions of what activities were risky as their children got older, which is great. But based on my experience, I do wonder how much of these results were the parent responding to a survey in a situation removed from any risk and thinking, yeah, I probably would let my child play fight with sticks, an action that researchers deemed moderately risky. But if their child actually started play fighting with sticks, they might see it as fighting or be afraid of what other parents might think or put a stop to it for a myriad other reasons. So do give a moment's thought to whether the things you're consistently saying no to are things that your child could actually now do for himself. 
Finally, we should acknowledge that risk and anxiety about these risks are socially constructed. People in different cultures have different experiences with and expectations about risk that determines what kinds of risk they're willing to tolerate their children being exposed to. Many families try to manage this risk by developing a minimum level of expectations or boundaries around what is acceptable, and the older children get, the more they attempt to negotiate these boundaries, particularly when two parents have different expectations about risk that children can potentially exploit. I'd encourage you to examine your beliefs about risk and how important you feel it is to a child's development, and then try to align your beliefs with your actions so you're not thinking that one thing is important, but actually sending a very different message to your child through what you allow him or her to do. You may find you need to conduct a mini intervention with yourself, as some researchers did with parents and teachers at several schools in New South Wales, Australia. The process took two hours and included a number of exercises like visualizing the adult's own favorite places to play as children, to compare their childhood play with their children's childhood play, and listening to stories about a girl climbing at a park who shifts from confident to fearful in response to her mother's panicked voice. Sadly, the study failed to measure whether these parents actually followed through and let their children take more risks, but the process seems psychologically valid. The intervention aimed to shift parents out of a fast-thinking model where they use heuristics to make decisions. A heuristic is a rule of thumb that develops over time, kind of like how parents say, be careful without really thinking about it, as soon as their child takes a tiny risk. Instead, the adults were encouraged to engage in slow thinking, to weigh the potential outcomes before making a choice, and consider whether the potential gain is worth the risk of possible loss. This obviously requires more effort and is a process we usually reserve for complex decision-making, but the researchers argue this is exactly what is needed if we're to reframe the way we think about risk to encompass ideas of uncertainty, opportunity, and challenge that may yield positive outcomes. From a practical standpoint, I think the easiest way to do this in real time is when your child asks if they can do something, try to have your default answer be yes, unless you can think and articulate a clear reason why they shouldn't. And if you see your child doing something that you think might be dangerous, just pause for a second before you shout, be careful or don't do that, and see what happens and consider whether the benefits might outweigh the risk. You just might find that most of the time they do. Thanks for listening. All the references for today's episode can be found at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash risky play. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Your Parenting Mojo. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes and sign up for our mailing list at yourparentingmojo.com to receive a free gift. Seven relationship-based strategies to support your children's development while making parenting just a little bit easier on you. For more respectful, research-based parenting ideas to help kids thrive, we'll see you next time on Your Parenting Mojo.